Mojave Beach Productions. From its Dark Moon Library, Mojave Beach Productions bring you tales well calculated to keep you in suspense. So the Howling Husky is based on a short story by Ian Hall, adapted for audio by Esther Luttrell, and performed by the Mojave Beach Players. In silver light on a moonlit night, to the tunes of old Tchaikovsky, a stranger's kiss proves the touch of death in the case of the Howling Husky. quite sure how I got the invitation of a lifetime, but I tend to think of it as divine providence. I mean, if there's murder to investigate, why not invite a Scotland Yard detective? But of course, when the card addressed to my wife arrived on my doormat, the crime to which I refer was three months in the future. Barbara Robertson, you and a partner are cordially invited to the independent performance of the Nutcracker Suite on June 21st, at the NP-62 Arctic Station. The troupe will consist of seven ballet companies based in UK, USA, Russian Federation, Italy, and Japan. Travel will be arranged. At first, it took my breath away, but almost instantly I grinned in recognition of the probable origin of the invitation. Needless to say, I didn't immediately show it to my sleepy-headed wife, still snuggled into her side of our king-size bed blissfully ensconced behind a fence of dreams. Why bother her with what was obviously a joke? I couldn't wait to get into the office and show it around, waiting for the prankster to own up to the elaborate gold-embossed card. It was March 28th, just three days before April Fool's Day. I had to smile at the attention to detail, the precise terminology, the rich tapestry of fabrication. On the subway into London, I opened my laptop and Googled NP-62 Arctic Station. The more I investigated the event, 
the more I felt inclined to keep my mouth shut when I got to the office. Damn it, if there wasn't a performance being planned for June, some sort of summer solstice anniversary of the first performance in St. Petersburg, Russia in 1892. This performance, however, was scheduled to be performed on a drifting ice station on Midsummer's Day. I read the Wikipedia details. Attendees had been chosen on a lottery basis, and tickets were expected to fetch $10,000 on the black market. Add to that, my wife Barbara was the biggest ballet buff in our family and a member of several associations. I disregarded the April Fool theory and reasoned that it had been those connections that got us on the ticket lottery. So, fast forward to June 17th in a rather shaky propeller flight from Oslo northwards. I can't say I enjoyed the rough journey, though I had an easier time of it than Barbara, who sat next to me, her knuckles white, fingers in a death grip on the armrests. As I looked around, I couldn't help but notice the quality of the passengers. No riffraff among the ballet buffs, off to a performance at the North Pole. With the bouncing around we took on the flight, I braced for a bad landing. But my fears were groundless. There was no covered corridor extending from airliner to terminal building. When we left the warmth of the craft, we were on a ramp, exposed to the elements. As I stepped onto the stairway, despite the freezing temperature, sunshine on the icy strip seemed to warm me up somehow. We all donned the sunglasses the stewardess had given us and walked down the steps to the tarmac. Apart from the bus in front of us, there was nothing but white snow and blue sky. The desolation was truly magnificent. A short bus ride took us to Drifting Ice Station 62, a collection of blue huts, dark yet colorful against the stark landscape. There we were each allocated bunks. Yeah, that's right, bunks in a communal building. Any notion of a romantic weekend vanished before my eyes. Babs looked around, her eyes wide with wonder and astonishment a child in a candy store. If I could have your attention. My head snapped round to see a man just outside the door. There's dinner in hut 16 at five o'clock, 1700 hours. We'll do an orientation then. The map is posted here outside the door. He tapped the wall. Don't go outside the compound, please. You have to remember there are polar bears up here. He flipped a so long salute and left us, closing the door loudly. Polar bears, I heard one of our roommates exclaim. I crossed to the map. Sixteen huts in a geometrical square. The arena lay to the south. Returning to our bunk, I found Babs staring out the window. Her breath pulsed on the glass. I couldn't help but be caught up in a little of her mood. There was an air of wonder about the whole affair. I'm sorry, I don't believe we've had it. It's like the one we had in Madrid. They asked for gluten-free, but I don't see... Dinner was remarkable. I expected trestle tables, a cafeteria line, and reconstituted beef hash. But we were served gourmet fare by a uniformed waitstaff. A film crew traversed the room, turning their camera this way and that, capturing our reaction to the astonishing event. When we had completed our meal... The lapel microphone on our host jacket gave us startlingly clear sound. Good evening, everyone. I am Kurt Anderson, director of Drifting Ice Stations. He went on to say that despite our Spartan living conditions, 
He hoped we enjoyed our dinner, blah, blah, blah. I looked around the room, sizing up my cohorts. After a while, Babs nudged me in the ribs, a reminder that I was not paying proper attention to what our host was saying. I gave her a dutiful smile and tuned into Anderson again. There will be three performances of the ballet, each led by the three premier ballet troops. The London Philharmonic will play at each performance and will commence tomorrow at 11 p.m. Thus, the midnight sun will illuminate each performance. I will now hand you over to Rajid Haman, project director. Anderson unhooked the mic from his lapel and clipped it onto the jacket of a very confident East Indian chap. Brochures are being handed out as I speak. You will see we have quite a full program of events over the next few days. Hotspur Enterprises will be filming in and around the base. When we are done, you will get a personal souvenir package containing a brochure, a souvenir DVD, and other memorabilia. A movie will be shown in this room at 8 tonight. That is 2,000 hours, if you are not too tired from your journey. What's the film? <laughs> not one of yours, Roger. Roger turned out to be the man behind the roving camera, and of course, we all laughed. If I could draw your attention to the security information inside the front page. Read along with me if you will. Don't worry outside the compound under any circumstances. If, despite our warning, you are outside, hear a siren, run for the nearest hut. We've been told that ominous cracks appear in the ice from time to time. Do I need to remind you that just 100 feet below us is the Arctic Ocean? We duly applauded, got up and returned to our huts. I could have slept for hours, but Barbara was still too high on excitement, and excellent wine for that. She was lying on her bunk, flipping through the brochure. Other guests around us were doing the same. Are we going to the film, Colin? We don't even know what's playing. I was in no mood to brave the cold and trudge across an ice floe to watch some movie I would probably hate, written in subtitles I would not be able to read because foreign films always show them on a speed belt of some kind. Maybe, uh, Scott of the Antarctic. Or Ice Station Zebra, I countered with more good cheer than I was feeling. Dave Gruber, this is my wife, Anne. We're from the States, um, Ohio. I suspected a boob job. On her, not him. Colin and Barbara Robertson from London. Well, just outside. Barbara had been lost in the glossy literature and totally missed out on introductions. Oh. It's a Russian performance. Tchaikovsky. Oh, I love Tchaikovsky. I glanced at my watch. I had 40 minutes to kill before two hours of boredom. I'm going to take a gander around, I announced to no one in particular as I pulled my fleeced line coat from a hook on the wall. I turned to Barbara, who was engrossed in the brochure again, and said to deaf ears, see if the air will wake me up. Long shadows crossed the snow from a low-hanging sun, yet the light had not the orange tint I expected from a sunset. Figures passed by as I orientated myself. Above the roofs of the huts, I noticed a complex framework of silver scaffolding in a huge curved arch. I set off southward to get a closer look. Lights and speakers above the stage were clamped into place on the structure. I noticed at least ten people up there, climbing along the metalwork like monkeys. The underside of the arch was empty, and the sun lay to one side. 
I expected that when midnight arrived, the sun would be center stage. Not bad at all, I muttered aloud. My breath clouded in the sunlight. Attention, look to me, Amanda. The dance troupe worked on stage, flitting through their moves, whipped by a choreographer who followed them like a bad smell. I didn't have to understand the words to know they were not complimentary. Then a lone figure appeared, running dramatically to center stage and slipping to the floor at the feet of the male lead. He slowly knelt and, lifting her head, kissed her. At that moment, the sound of a scream ripped through the air. I turned my head to one side, trying to determine where it had come from, and realized it originated from behind the stage. A gunshot, then another. I was already running toward the back of the stage when I heard a dog howl in the distance. A cruelly lonesome sound. Its cry was taken up by others. Their keening punctuated my steps, then fell hauntingly silent. In ballet or dance, we watched, entranced, and remember the art of Nijinsky. But memories fade as the morgue fills high in the case of the Howling Husky. The girl behind the stage was in a bad way. Despite her considerable wounds, she clutched at the man who raised her head from the snow. Blood covered her pale blue dancing outfit. Splashes and smears that lay on the snow around her looked almost black in contrast. The men trying to soothe her spoke Russian, but I could see death approaching. The girl's stomach wound was open and nasty. I don't think she lived 15 seconds after I arrived. There was nothing I could do. Nothing any of us could do. What happened? I asked the Russian, wondering if there was a connection between them. Another man ran toward us from across the snow, a rifle in his hand. Bear, he huffed, out of breath from the run. Big one. I believed him. The victim's stomach was virtually ripped open. By now a crowd had begun to gather. I pushed them away, looking at the trampled snow for bear tracks. Stand back, I shouted to the gathering crowd. You're contaminating the crime scene. But of course, the language barrier stymied my words, and the number of onlookers continued to grow. Did you see what happened? I asked the man with the rifle. He nodded. Big bear, he repeated, his face white. He just flipped her, then gored her. Any idea who she is? The man shook his head. Name? I asked the Russian who still cradled her. Naman? Vihaisensi? He lifted his head. I could see the pain he felt. She Natalie Ravchenko, big star. Crap, that was all we needed. A trip to the edge of the world to see a show on an iceberg. And the star is killed by a bear almost the minute we land. The event big weeks began arriving as I cleared away the tourists, the friends, the dancers. To be truthful, 
when the ice station director, Anderson, pushed me to one side. I didn't complain. It had turned into a busman's holiday. I was thinking that if I kept my mouth shut, maybe I wouldn't have to get involved. Anderson took charge, and I went on with Barbara and the Grubers to the movie. Yes, they still showed the film, and on time, too. About a third of the way through it, someone stopped the video, and a messenger walked down the aisle, calling for me by name. Can't someone else do it? We were headed toward the administration hut. Well, sorry, you're in charge now. Anderson and Haman said you're the only cop within, like, 3,000 miles. I ended up sitting opposite Anderson at his desk. He was obviously rattled and trying not to show it. His main complaint was that there were too many groups, too many factions involved. He was in over his head and he knew it. So his remark about how badly I was needed was not so much a compliment as it was a desperate plea not to leave him alone in this suddenly incredible international mess. Some damn holiday, I was thinking, as I realized I was about to be bombarded by details that began by him telling me this was the second attack, the first one three days ago, before guests began arriving. The star of the show, Yunmila Terenkova, was savagely mauled and died at the scene. Another bear? If my tone was incredulous, it was intentional. Why had no one mentioned this before now? When I asked if I might inspect the body, I was told the plane we arrived on had departed with the mangled remains of the Russian ballerina. I was about to breathe a sigh of relief. After all, if they sent the body back to officials in their country, investigators were surely on their way. But hopes are easily dashed on floating ice stations, I soon realized. Bad weather, he said, had sucked in airfields, so, like it or not, I was in charge of the case of the bears and the ballerinas. And then it hit me how an investigation was absurd. What was I supposed to do? Go out searching for a suspicious-looking polar? Something was playing with my mind, but I couldn't pin it down. Maybe because everybody had names so unfamiliar, so difficult to pronounce. I had trouble keeping them straight. Yundmila, the star of this globalized televised vent, was killed by a bear maybe the same bear that killed Natalie Ravchenko, who, with the death of her competition, was to have become the sole star of the show. But the monster was a bear, I reminded myself. And this was not a Scotland Yard escapade with a two-legged murderer at the end of our chase. Some fellow actually saw the creature, took a shot at him even. I heard it myself. When I mentioned the fellow to Anderson, he rose from his chair went to the door and called out for someone named Fred. Turns out the guy was in the corridor, waiting to give his statement to authorities. Instead of confirming what we thought we already knew, he sheepishly confessed that he'd seen nothing. Fred, the rifleman, was a mousy fellow eager to make an impression on a troupe of beautiful dancers. So he made up a yarn that he hoped would bring them to the conclusion that his firing a shot may have saved their pretty little rear ends. He finally shuffled out of the room, discredited and embarrassed. So there I was, across the desk from Anderson, watching the set of his jaw get tighter and his cold eyes go colder. He didn't have to say it. I had the same question I was sure was on his mind. It was hard enough to accept that one bear had killed two dancers, two lead dancers. But if not an animal then we had no choice but to conclude it was a human being. 
The new question was, who? Who would want them dead? And why? I asked Anderson how many people he estimated to be on the ice station. 500, he said. Give or take a few. As Babs watched the rest of the movie in the dinner hut, a warm-up video promoting the upcoming ballet, I found myself with Anderson in a make-do lab several hundred feet across the ice, where I picked open the remains of Natalie's belly. I've seen some rough scenes in my day, but this was top-shelf gross. These do look like claw scores, I said, as I shone the beam from a flashlight into her guts and gently pulled intestine. When he replied that they could just as easily have been caused by a knife. He looked as if he might lose his lunch. I nodded, grimacing, as I forced myself to open slices of an organ. I think it was a kidney. Then we have a murderer in the camp with a weapon like Freddy Krueger's hand, I said to Anderson, but he was too nauseous to respond. My first suspect, Katrina Votskayev, was third in line to dance the lead, but she proved way too skittish to answer much in the way of questions. I had a feeling the Russian translator was screwing the words up anyway. The company do not want Katrina to dance. Why not? She has no experience at this level. I looked at Anderson. So if she doesn't dance, who gets the nod? His best guess was that it might be someone from another troupe. When I asked why they couldn't just stop the performance, he replied curtly that it was impossible. Too much money was involved. I told him to send a message to every one of the dance companies that no one was to go anywhere alone, not even to take a leak. I went to bed that night with a lot on my mind. I would have welcomed darkness, but the heavy curtains at the windows didn't help much in keeping out the sunlight. I woke with a start when the door burst open. A howling wind swept a cloud of snow into the hut, along with a man who closed the door, then staggered to the center of the room. He began checking numbers engraved on the foot of each bunk bed. I sat up on my elbows, ready for anything. Can I help you? He flicked the parka hood from his face, revealing a young, angular face. Although he couldn't have been more than twenty, his voice was surprisingly mature. Mr. Robertson? Policeman? That's me. He glanced around the room before stepping closer. I am Roland Gusev, Russian police. I was told I'm the only law here. He fished in his pocket for a realistic-looking ID card with a photo. The details were in Russian, of course. I swung my legs off the bed, landing lightly on the linoleum floor. Do the dance companies know your identity? Gusev shook his head. I am dancer. I have been in dance team for two years. Undercover? Uh, da, yes. I work undercover. I felt a pang of optimism. Maybe the kid could take over from here, and I could go back to England to enjoy our vacation, after all. So, do you know who murdered the two women? It's not easy. I, I am dancer, but not good one, so I keep in my place. He looked around the hut at the other guests, 
All attention was focused on us. Uh, come with me. It's better there is not big number of people. Eight minutes later, we sat in a small locker room under the stage. A few tables were littered with remnants of a party. Gusev put two half-filled glasses on one of the tables and sat down. Together we downed shots of a very passable scotch. I have suspect for the first murder, but he has a story for the second. An alibi. Ata, alibi. He is boyfriend of Katrina, but it seems too easy. He took me through the whole hierarchy of the Russian troop. After at least five more shots of scotch, I left him and walked out into the morning sunlight. I climbed twenty rickety stairs onto the stage and strolled to the edge. The soft rubber floor matting shifted slightly under my feet. Again, I heard the low keening of dogs and wondered where they were kept. The sound was so mournful, I could feel a mass of tears accumulate in my throat. I felt silly as hell and swallowed them back. As I stood looking into the camp, a group of men approached, heading directly toward me. Identical colored parkas, determined strides. Two carried sidearms. I recognized Anderson in the middle. When he called my name, I waved an acknowledgement, but my heart was heavy, but not as heavy as it became when he grimly announced there had been another one. I didn't need to ask what he was talking about. The unseen sled dog's head already alerted me. Hair rose on my arms, on the back of my neck, as I realized the canines seemed to be able to sense death. I closed my ears to the howling dogs. Show me, I said, wishing Barbara and I could just get on the next plane and go home. A flow of gold and a rich and old over ice, a flood of whiskey. Can assuage remorse on a hardened heart in the case of the howling husky? The body of Nicholas Monroe, a perimeter guard, had been dragged into the snowdrift, his clothing shredded. Yet there was little blood spatter immediately around him. He's been moved, I said. I was squinting into the distance, as if I could determine a set of footprints that would lead me to the killer. Anderson remained immobile. He had hardly said a word on our journey out of the camp. The buildings and stage were nearly a quarter of a mile away. Scout around, I said to his minions. I need to know where he was killed. Oh, and be careful. Every one of you will leave tracks that screw up evidence. It turned out that Monroe had been murdered just a hundred yards away. His blood had seeped up through the snow piled onto the area in an effort to obscure the crime. So, at least we can count out a bear this time, I wisely observed. As we walked back to the compound, Anderson continually checked a piece of paper on a clipboard. Despite the gruesome circumstances, people milled around in groups, preparing for dinner, followed by the first Nutcracker performance. It seemed surreal, 
but there was little point in stopping the show since we were stranded together anyway. The corporate stooges had paid their money, and the show would go on. Everyone in administration did their best to keep details from the public, but rumors abounded, and there was a buzz you could not only hear but feel. At dinner, we hooked up with the Grubers from Ohio. I asked them to chaperone Barbara for a while. Sure. What's up? I had no reason to lie, but his wife turned white when I told him the news. <laughs> Don't worry. He's having a far better time than he would be watching ballet. She gave me a wry grin, determined not to let anything, no matter how grim, ruin the mood of the evening. I gave her a grateful glance, and when no one was looking, a love pat on her butt. After dinner, as the Grubers and Babs got ready to watch another brief film in the dinner hall, I sought out Gusev and pulled him away from the dance company. I need a partner, I told him. This is too big to tackle on my own. To my heartfelt thanks, he agreed. As we strolled up the main street, I brought him up to speed on the latest murder. So, my friend, why do you think the murderer killed a guard? What would be his motive? Gusev pulled a small flask from inside his jacket and passed it to me. Uh, why is it a man? Uh, why not woman? You saw Monroe's body. It'd take a mighty strong woman to do that. Uh, agreed. Maybe Monroe knew something. I noticed that his English improved as we conversed. Now we walked the camp together, a team. Basically, he was the only one that I knew beyond a doubt was innocent. He'd been drinking with me when Monroe was murdered. Everyone else in the camp, except my wife, was a suspect. Gusev's remark hit home. Maybe it wasn't what he knew, but what he saw. Maybe Monroe stumbled upon a killer doing something that gave him away. We scouted the area where the guard died and found nothing new. By the time we'd finished, the audience was taking their seats at the amphitheater, and I sought out my date. How's it going, honey? There's not much to do right now. Let's just enjoy the show. There was a glossy program on every chair, and again, the cameras covered the whole event. I counted six filming the dancers, and two remote control cameras on wires above the stage. We were seated beside the Groovers. Babs and Anne chatted incessantly over who was playing which character, where they'd seen them perform before. The first performance was staged by the premier American company. With the backdrop of the approaching low sun under the arch of lights, it made a very impressive display. The first act ended with the sun in the very center of the archway. A short firework display celebrated the pale midnight light. Then, as the second act began, I caught a movement out of the corner of my eye, a figure walking backstage. Having been a cop for 15 years, I know a suspicious character when I see one. The mysterious figure made every hackle on my neck stand on end. 
I shot to my feet and slipped along the row of chairs. In seconds, I had turned the corner of the stage. Running along the side, I was surely in the footsteps of the man who had disappeared behind the backdrop and scaffolding. I hurried, almost slipping on the well-trampled snow, but somehow kept my balance, my arms cycling in the air. I heard footsteps behind me, but had neither time nor coordination to look back. So intent was I on my pursuit. As I turned another corner, my feet fell onto thick carpeting, making the pursuit much easier. I arrived at the back of the stage and saw a young ballerina standing on her tiptoes, with her hands flailing above her head. Her back was to me. Three men in parkas appeared to be hurrying away from a dark place on stage where the girl had landed after a twirl. Hidden in shadow, they plunged toward her as a group, then turned and ran away, taking flight. They didn't catch one hint of their faces. Stop! As the girl moved tentatively away from the shadows, she fell back again. I was prepared to take chase after the three men when the ballerina began shaking slightly. Her knees buckled as she turned to me with the oddest look of surprise in her eyes that I had ever seen. Her face contorted in pain. As she wobbled a bit, I could see the source of her discomfort. A large hunting knife had been driven upwards into her stomach. A killing blow, if I ever saw one. She continued to fasten those surprised eyes on me. Then she looked at the handle of the knife. Amazingly, she still managed to remain on her toes, though she was unsteady. I took a quick step toward her as she finally succumbed to gravity. Her frail figure fell against me. I could do nothing but grasp her as the trio of men disappeared from sight. It was then that a shot rang out behind me. Halt! Stop! Or the next one is for you! Miraculously, the men all stopped, then looked sideways at each other reluctantly raising their hands. As Gusev moved swiftly past me, I slumped to my knees under the dead weight of the dying dancer, now surrounded by frantic, gasping, screaming cast members dressed in the most outrageous costumes one could imagine. The light, both from the wan midnight sun and the stage, cast strange shadows, some dancing, some pale and colored. The dancers cried, their fingers caressing the victim's face while her dark blood seeped round her middle, pooling in my lap. I once again accepted there was little I could do. Someone, I'm not sure who, leaped onto the stage and led the stunned orchestra, completely disorienting the audience, but at least they were distracted. Ripples of voices sounded of curiosity, but soon settled into a silence appreciative of the musicians. Moments before the attack, the ballerina had danced to a place at the back of the stage, facing the audience. That area was steeped in shadow. As she executed a perfectly choreographed spin, one of the men, but which one, concealed by darkness, plunged the knife into her midsection. It all happened so quickly, even those in the front row could not swear what they saw. The girl stumbled into the shadows where I was preparing to take chase after the men. The quick-thinking cast member, or perhaps the music director, I'm not sure, leaped into action, diverting everyone's attention from the gruesome reality of what just happened right in front of them. That's when cast members, huddled in the wings on either side of the stage, suddenly burst to life and swooped in on us. Oh my God! I was still in deep backstage shadows, cradling the fallen dancer in my arms, 
when a battle-axe female choreographer arrived, driving the dancers from us. Places! Places, everyone! She looked at the girl in my arms and swallowed hard. For a moment, I thought she might throw up, but instead, she pulled in a resolute breath and barked so loudly, I actually jumped. Amanda! Where is Amanda? You, take Claire's role. In a flash, she rallied her flock to action, her arms wide, hands pushing and slapping. More men arrived, among them Anderson and Haman. I looked down at the girl's face and realized I had missed her last breath. Her eyes, now glossy and unfocused, stared into the pale blue sky, mirroring the high cloud. I pushed her into Anderson's arms and got slowly to my feet. Gusev had the three men on the ground, face down, hands behind their backs. Can I help? I asked as I crossed to the guard. The Russian undercover agent dancer flipped the safety on his pistol and threw it to me, indicating the three men in kneeling positions in front of us. He snarled. Pointed heads. Kill if they make a move. Gusev dropped his weight on the first ah. one, obviously winding the prone man. The guard, fueled by anger, punched the man's head from the side, sending his face thumping into the carpet matting. I almost protested. Almost. We were the only law in town, and our protectorate was dying at an alarming rate. It was time for serious measures. Then the music died. And blow me down if the dogs didn't start howling once more. I lifted my head, searching for the direction of the wind, and wondered if the dogs sensed death. Or had they smelled blood? I looked over the white wasteland at the midnight sun and fervently hoped the killings had finally stopped. Detectives talk as the killer walks. A Yank, a Brit, or a Rusky? For only one has a conscience black in the case of the Howling Husky. Across the table from me sat a man in his twenties, his arms cable-tied behind his back. His driving license put him at twenty-six, a member of the London Troop, a lighting rigger from Bootle just outside Liverpool. Gusev stood behind him, arms folded. Despite his youth, he looked very threatening. Derek Jacobs, I read aloud. He'd been the first of the three I would interrogate, and the hut was empty apart from us. We'd wasted little time. It was only 2.30 in the morning, and the guest and cast were back in their huts. Why were you behind the stage? Doing me job, he replied glibly. What else? So tell me what you saw. I leaned so close, his mouth was practically on my ear. I never saw nothing, he said, then winced as Gusev slapped him roughly from behind. Hey, you can't do that. I know me rights. Gusev hit him again, his knuckles punching the man high on the temple. Hey, all right, all right. One guy held her and one guy stabbed her. It was over in seconds. Gusev gave him a left, then a right, both bouncing Derek's head around wildly. Further question and a few more head blows provided us with little else. Derek claimed he had witnessed the stabbing, but 
could provide us with nothing substantial. The next guy was American. He gave us a cover story of working sound with a performing troupe. Gusev's blows went unheeded by the thickly muscled Texan. I wanted Gusev to stop, change methods, but I kept the thought to myself. I had little skin in the game, and any tactic that provided us with the identity of our murderer was fine by me. When we questioned the third man, a Russian, Gusev translated for me as he went along. Same tactics as before. I sat opposite as he pounded the poor man's head with fists and palms. Roman Ryazin worked directly for the general contractor responsible for the logistics of the whole project. After we returned him to a makeshift cell, I took to the internet. I looked up the companies they said they worked for, but everything checked out and the companies appeared to have nothing that would connect them to one another or to the murders. So we interrogated them all again, but we couldn't break their stories. Each was only a witness, none of them the killer. We even hinted that the other had already confessed, but they gave us nothing except wry, disbelieving smiles. The three had little rest all night. By ten o'clock we called it quits. We had exhausted ourselves as much as our prisoners, and were no further forward for our pains. When I got back to our hut, Barbara gave me a wrinkled nose look. Ooh, have you showered since you landed? Suitably chastised, I hit the shower at the end of the building, changing clothes for the first time in two days. When I got out into the main room, I felt 100% better, although I knew fatigue lingered in my periphery. My head hit the pillow as Babs gave me the rundown on last night's performance. I don't think I heard 30 seconds of it. When I woke, the hut was empty. I glanced at my watch, 5.15. Dinner time, I said with some gusto, throwing my feet off the bed and slipping to the floor. Babs, Ann, and Dave Gruber were already slurping wine as I snatched Barbara's glass, draining it in one gulp. Whoa, big boy, Ann warned, but I just gave her a toothy grin. Truth is, if I'd had a whiskey bottle, I'd have hit it long ago. I wolfed dinner and slipped another three glasses of wine down my throat. Leaning back on my seat, I had to admit I felt slightly better than before. I almost jumped out of my skin when a hand landed on my shoulder. Gusev. We have news. We're attracting attention. Let's go outside. Liazan is a broken man. Maybe it was the translation. I didn't get it. He hasn't broken. He talked to me. Hot damn. We had a break. What did he say? Oh, he had lots to say. Gusev gave me such a smile that I instantly felt sorry for the detainee. He squealed for many minutes before he shut up. In Anderson's office, Gusev read his notes. Ryazan is member of organization Spetz 89. It's a group of paid soldiers made by Russia when we finished with Afghanistan. They now work for governments who pays good. He's a mercenary? Uh, yes, mercenary. He now works for RKK in Russia. <laughs> his television company. 
they did not win bidding for the ballet film, so now they seek to destroy all competition. It should have made sense. It just didn't. A TV company killed four people because of ratings? I couldn't believe it. Russian TV is different. Russian TV will kill for such things. Suddenly, the door burst open, and two uniformed men burst inside. I know an assault rifle when I see one, and I hate staring down any barrel. Here, the lead man said, though neither of them wore an insignia. The Russian accent in his speech was inescapable. You come outside hot, you die. There are many, many of us. They closed the door behind them, and I dashed to the window. Outside, I could see perhaps a hundred uniformed men searching the huts. Spets 89. The other prisoners! Anderson had been silent until now. He told them the men were in hut six. I turned to Gusev to ask what we should do. We stay in hut. Gusev's logic seemed difficult to argue with. We didn't have the manpower or guns to face up to such numbers. I felt powerless. Where did they come from? I do not know. I gave thought to the people in the dinner hall. Damn. I shook my head in frustration. They planned this to the minute. The best time to find our people grouped together. Ten minutes later, the men retreated to the north, the direction of the airfield. Once they had gone, Gusev and I ran to Hut 6. Of course, our prisoners had been taken, all three of them. I strode to the dinner hut with purpose, exasperated at the turn of events. Finding Barbara, I hugged her tight. My goodness, Colin, what's that all about? I didn't know what to say, how to explain it. Anderson had begun to speak, trying to calm the guests. I didn't even sit down. I just walked back outside, gritting my teeth, my insides heavy as lead. The unseen dogs began to howl once more. I shivered with a sick feeling of dread. There were too many countries involved. The three men, murderers, would be whisked to safety behind curtains too thick to penetrate. The law was too convoluted and international in scope to even hope there would ever be justice for the dead. And all for the sake of television entertainment. All because a certain group didn't win a stupid contract to produce a stupid ballet. I shook my head in irony. Wars had been started for less, I had to admit. As I turned back to join my wife, the howl of the dogs grew more intense. A hint of what was yet to come. Or was I hearing the agony of great defeat? So much for a holiday. As the sun sets low on the Arctic snow, the light turns gray and dusky. For the midnight sun masks a guilty smile in the case of the Howling Husky. This has been a Mojave Beach production. 
presented by Dark Moon Library and featuring the Mojave Beach Players. Your storyteller was Chuck Fresh as Colin Robertson. He also played Derek Jacobs. Eddie Craig was heard as Rajet Hammond and Kurt Anderson. Patrick McGranahan portrayed Dave Gruber, and Betty Jackson was his wife, Anne. Darlene Smith-Ash took on the roles of the voice of poetry, the fierce Russian choreographer, and Barbara Robertson. Mike Matheson was heard as Roger. Chuck Mosley played Roland Gusev. Written by Ian Hall, Case of the Howling Husky was adapted for audio by Esther Luttrell. Tchaikovsky composed the music. Patrick McGranahan executive produced. And I am Jack Diamond, inviting you to soar on the wings of imagination to Mojave Beach Productions' world of audio entertainment. I just want to take a moment to thank you for soaring with us on the wings of imagination as you listen to stories we're having so much fun creating for you. If you enjoy what you hear, take a moment to subscribe to Mojave Beach Productions on your favorite podcast app. And thanks a million. <laughs>